It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I am a Korean citizen studying at a university in the U.S. I'm currently a senior and my major is in management. This student asked that we don't use her name on the podcast. But she attends a university with a fairly large population of other Korean international students. And we wanted to know what it was like to have to receive money from parents who remain abroad. I think finances isn't really something that as a culture we talk about with each other anyway. But there's no sense that there's any particular like inconvenience to them when it comes to like money, receiving money from their family. This is a major change from even just a few years ago when money movement wasn't nearly as efficient. So on my end, it seems pretty seamless where my parents would be like, we're going to send you X amount of money today. And it arrives in my bank account same day. But from their perspective, it might be a bit different in the sense that they might be planning several days ahead in terms of when is that money going to hit the bank account and what is the exchange rate looking like in that week. So it's much more convenient for me than it is for my parents. And as we'll hear from today's guests, it's much more convenient for her parents than it was for parents a generation ago. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. I'm Indre Viscontis. On this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, enabling our fellow humans to survive and thrive. And we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. With more and more of our financial transactions going digital, it seems natural to expect money to move just as easily across borders as it does within them. After all, it's not like sending an email is more cumbersome if the recipient is on a different continent. But of course, sending money to the wrong person is, well, most of the time, a bigger problem than a misdirected email. And while money is fungible, a dollar bill can be exchanged with any other and still represent the same value, When crossing borders, now that countries are no longer using the gold standard, literally, to anchor currencies, fluctuating exchange rates can mean that a dollar's value in another country is, well, somewhat negotiable, or at least in flux. By making it easier and faster to transfer money from one currency to another, some of the guesswork and the anxiety that comes with trying to game the system to optimize the exchange rate in your favor is becoming a thing of the past. But when sending money to the U.S. from Asia, much like this student's parents do, there are still many complications to overcome including the fact that the U.S. uses a free-floating exchange rate system, while many Asian countries use soft pegs, anchoring their rates to baskets of currencies or other methods in an attempt to control volatility. How does the timing of transactions, then, influence money movement? In this episode, we're exploring global remittances and the tech that enables them, with a particular focus on Asia-Pacific. And so, Joining me to talk about this is Deepan Dagur, Vice President, Head of Visa Direct Asia Pacific, and Aswin Plapungpanich, who's the co-founder and CEO of D-Money in Thailand. Welcome to Money Travels, Deepan and Aswin. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Good morning as well. Uh, it's great to have you. It's evening for me, but that's what happens when you're on a global money show. <laughs> 
Deepan, I want to start with you. And I want to ask you to tell me about your dad and what he had to go through to send money to you when you were away at university. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I grew up in Hong Kong and I went to undergrad in the UK. I was 17 years old. And to send me my sort of annual tuition fee, living expenses, etc., my father had to make me a transfer, which would typically happen once a year. He'd take a morning off work, he'd walk into the branch, he'd fill up a form, stand in a queue, hand the form over to a teller. Then he'd go home and he'd call me and I'd wait for two or three days and pray that the money hit the account. And for that pleasure, he'd probably pay around two or 3% in FX margins, not knowing to him, of course. And he'd probably pay around 40 or 50 US dollars as a swift charge. I have kids and I live here in Singapore and they might go overseas one day to study. With all the options available to me now and how cost-effective it is and how quick it is, I don't think I'd be sending them their annual tuition fee and living expenses in one shot. Yeah. I'd probably break it down into smaller chunks. So, you know, we start each episode with a story of a person who's sort of dealing with the issue that we're going to be covering. And so we went and asked a Korean international student whose, whose parents are in Korea, you know, how she gets her money. And she was like, yeah, it's not a problem. <laughs> Just ask my parents, send me a hundred bucks. I get a hundred bucks in my account. Yep. It's really quite different. And I want to talk about, you know, the fact that now we can send money with so much ease. It means that we don't have to do these big lump sums at once, as you were describing, you know, your dad essentially sending you like the entire year's worth of your budget. And instead, remittances have essentially microtized. So I wonder, Deepan, if you could tell us about this trend towards low-value, high-volume transactions. you have any sense of how much of the market share in terms of global remittances this takes on? And how is this a shift from, say, even 10 years ago? One is an example we just talked about. That was one big lumpy transaction per year. But fast forward you know, a couple of decades later, I would have made a similar payment maybe once a month or once every two weeks. So straight away, the number of transactions has multiplied by 12 or 24. The average transaction size inflation notwithstanding, would have sort of dropped by 90 or 95%, right? So as things have become digital, more cost-effective, more seamless, they've microtized. Don't look the word up. It doesn't really exist, I believe, right? <laughs> but even beyond P2P, we see trends like this, right? Not just in the P2P remittance, which is what this use case is, but even in sort of a gig economy payouts, content creator payouts, influencer payouts, and so forth. Those are use cases also that need high frequency of relatively low value payments on average mm -hmm. to an extremely high number of countries. Yeah. So, you know, this seems to have at least created a new marketplace for fintech and for companies like Aswan's like yours. So do you want to tell us about D-Money and whether you feel that in some senses it is answering a call that the marketplace created or is it actually creating more of a market and opportunities? Absolutely. I think it's an opportunity of opportunities at this point because the market's basically moving from traditional expectations of three to five days, like Deepan said, to real time now. And real time has a lot of definitions, by the way. You know, we work with many partners and they can range from 20 seconds to 30 minutes. And all I can say is the customer behavior, once that's happened, ever since D-Money launched around five years ago till now, and we're processing over 300,000 transactions of money movement coming from over 100 countries into Thailand, we've seen behaviors absolutely microtize and change because customers can rely on this very dependent timing and they can actually send on a Saturday and Sunday. 
and actually believe that the other side is actually going to receive the money. So it's this whole new change of behavior that we're seeing. And definitely the ticket sizes go lower and the frequency goes higher, exactly like Deepan said. I wonder how this affects sort of the psychology, especially like of a university student. You know, Deepan, you want to talk to us about what it was like to get this lump sum and then have to do your budgeting when you're, what, 18, 17 years old? And now yes, when you could jump in and talk about whether you see more of the parents holding the purse strings. I had a friend in college that came with me from Thailand. His father found it really difficult, basically, to, you know, bother going to the branch and do multiple transactions. So he sent him literally four years worth of tuition into his account. Okay. (laughs) That's what he did. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to bother with this craziness and I'm going to send you four years worth of tuition. And he basically became a bank for all his friends. And of course, (laughs) had a very tough time managing the funds for those number of years and I don't want to get into details, but it got out of hand very quickly in terms of responsibility. (laughs) So yeah, that was an extreme story of trying to save up and not bother about sending transactions and not being aware of when it's going to reach. Yeah. So Deepan, what was your experience? Did you start a bank? (laughs) I mean, I didn't start a bank, but I I must confess, I may have taken some portion of the first year fees and uh, put it on the stock market. And and luckily it didn't go bad. And I didn't have to have that awkward conversation with my father. I shared it with him on a milestone birthday not too long ago. (laughs) I think a couple of decades later, all is forgiven. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a risk. Right. And I think the example that Aswin has given us is just a reminder. I mean, these are not small amounts of money. Right. And it is difficult to send that kind of quantity to an 18 year old in another country when they're traveling for the first time. So there are other ways to do it. Right. Either you sell smaller payments, which we've talked about, or the institution that you pay or the opposite side could change. Right. There's a lot of solutions where you don't pay the student directly Mm -hmm. and then they pay the university. But the parent can pay the university directly and then they just send their child their living expenses, which will be sort of a more modest sum. So that could also be another solution that cross-border money movement has kind of solved for. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of like a meal plan, you know, where like, sure, you get a whole bunch of money on your meal plan. And by the end of the month, you're like, you know, picking the cheapest things (laughs) because you've blown it on pizza in the first week. But it also made me wonder sort of how it affects family dynamics. So a bit like how video calls have made it much easier to stay in closer touch with loved ones far away. In some ways, with these smaller remittances, you're also allowing the parents or whomever is sending the money a bit of an insight into like what the person is doing. You know, oh, oh, I see you're like need to go to the movies. So here's some money for, you know, popcorn, etc. How was the movie at the end of the day? You know, maybe this is where D-Money or some future fintechs might get involved in is sort of in terms of thinking about these kinds of smaller payments as a way of staying in touch or knowing what someone far away is actually doing. I think use cases exactly will drive, you know, every transaction. So it's the story behind the use of the money. If we go into the details right now, that can actually spur the sender in this case, whether it's a parent, whether it's a supplier or a vendor or whoever it is that is, you know, requesting or sending the funds. In this case, the use case will become the determinant of how to send it and when to send it and where to send it. We are seeing that quite clearly already very drastically change over the last few years. 
Yeah, and so in the past decade, the global remittance market has grown from some, you know, more than 500 billion to almost 800 billion. So 773 is a number I have listed. What does that mean, Deepan, in Asia specifically? And are there specific countries in the region that seem to be driving more of this market growth? Or is it sort of common across all countries? Tell us a little bit about the market share in Asia for this global remittance product. Cross-border payments is really integral to Asia. And maybe I can just explain a few statistics. When we look at P2P payments or B2C payments, the disbursement examples I talked about earlier, 46% of all cross-border transactions globally have an Asia-Pacific touchpoint. 46%. And sort of why is this? And really, it's three reasons. Number one, Asia is the manufacturing hub of the world. 41% of global exports originate from Asia-Pacific. Of course, countries like China, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam, India, sort of major contributors to that. And for every widget that goes on a ship from an exporting country in Asia, there's some dollars that come back in reverse. So that's sort of the first big driver. The second big driver is a high percentage of Asians migrate. They work outside their home countries, and then they remit that money home. Three of the five largest recipient countries globally are in Asia Pacific, India, China, and Philippines. And obviously, populations from those three countries have moved outside their home markets and are sending the money home. And that's a big driver of that inward remittance. And that can be both blue collar and white collar across the income range. And I think the third big use case, we've talked about education and cross-border outbound. But even beyond that, high percentage of Asians buy property overseas, manage their wealth overseas, buy healthcare or health insurance overseas. So that outbound use case is particularly important for those sorts of use cases as well. And they can be quite material ticket sizes too. So I just want to tell me a little bit about Thailand and what were some of the challenges in terms of building D-Money and sort of what specifically was it looking to solve for the Thai people? We actually started up at a very interesting time in Thailand, I would say, being one of the first fintechs or in Thailand, we call them non-banks. So in this case, we're not a bank. And we got a financial license to do money transfers. At that stage, I would say it was a very interesting time when we got the license. It was just five and a half years ago. Everything was still very much in terms of boxed around branches, mm. thinking that we would enable over-the-counter branches, whether it be you know convenience stores or whether it would be our own branches. Those would be the touch points assumed to do KYCs as well as physical face-to-face onboardings and accepting cash, believe it or not, as the main source of transfer. Just jumping in to say that KYCs or know your client or customer is short form for verifying their identity. So fast forward that, (laughs) where we are today, especially through COVID, there is no branches in D-Money. We only have two for very specific reasons. And everything is electronic KYC, and our entire product is an account-to-count, or in this case, a digital source of funds. There's no cash at all involved in the entire transaction mode. So for regulators, for industry, for the entire ecosystem to go through this change in this very short time, you can imagine all the challenges involved. And that with COVID, of course, it became even more interesting The customers saying, you know, I'm stuck in Singapore. I have to move money from Thailand to Singapore because I'm stuck and I need my account to work situation. So we had to work with a regulatory body to actually figure out how to do this. 
do EKYC for customers and actually process funds. And this happened all in a very, very short time. So tell me about how you collaborate with Visa Direct and maybe which of these pain points or opportunities did this collaboration help you solve? So I think Visa Direct, firstly, is a very new initiative in general, and we see actually tremendous potential. When I think of sending money right now, and most people probably think of it, I think it's probably sent to an account, sent to a wallet, or sent to cash, or vice versa, receive in cash, receive an account, receive in a wallet. I think we're going to change that behavior in complete, where now a card or a 16-digit is going to become an endpoint or a send point in this case. So that behavior of a card becoming an endpoint with 3 billion eligible cards around the world, I think that in itself is something to marvel about because that's more than all the accounts that I can imagine sending to or receiving from. And over 190 countries of coverage being able to send and receive in real time or close to 30 minutes. I think this is a game changer for any fintech who's adopting this technology and working with Visa Direct. And it's an extremely exciting time to be part of this initiative. Really what we're doing at Visa Direct is facilitating money movement, both for non-banks, to use Aswin's word, and also for banks in the cross-border money movement needs as they serve their retail SME clients. Visa Direct helps facilitate money movement for banks and fintechs to over 7 billion endpoints around the world across cards, bank accounts, and digital wallets. I mean, the story is a little bit different between banks and non-banks. I think banks are looking for typically an alternate solution to what they have with their bilateral SWIFT-based correspondent banking. Mm-hmm. And of course, fintechs or non-banks have entered the market, often offer a number of financial services to their customers, of which cross-border send and cross-border receive is important. So obviously from what Aswin has explained, I mean, he's, he's trying to offer his customers as much choice as possible. You know, Aswin, you alluded to how the number of cash-involved transactions seems to have decreased, especially as a result of the pandemic. So when remitters increasingly choose digital solutions, what kind of pressure does that put on keeping costs down for senders and receivers? As you know, you can imagine that, you know, even small fees are going to add up if this is like primarily the way that you're moving money. I'll give a great statistic right now. Thailand actually in terms of population to real-time transactions is actually number one in the world, believe it or not, in terms of domestic rails. So we have adopted a technology by a network called PromptPay here. It is a go-to standard to basically send and receive using QR payments and has become a behavior of cashless economy in the domestic market. But what that has done, and and by the way, that's free to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that behavior and that demand now. They're actually wanting real-time free, in essence, because of behavioral issues that have cropped up in the last three, four years, saying, I can do real-time domestic for free, so would I be able to do international and cross-border for free? Obviously not, to be answering you that really quickly, because cost of transactions, cost of regulation frameworks, compliance, and transaction monitoring, and all sorts of network costs jurisdictions and so many other costs related to moving funds put a huge pressure to actually this growing demand of a consumer who's saying, if I can do that for free, why can't I do this for free? Or really bring the cost really low. And in D-Money, what we did was we introduced something as flat fee as the first provider in the country. 
And that was already a game changer because all the competitors out there who were in Thailand, whether it's banks or other MTOs, had what was called tiered pricing. And it would be as much as $5 to $300, depending on what you were sending and to where. And what we did was we made it 125 baht, which is a little bit over $3, and said, if it's 30 or if it's $20,000, and no matter where you go, it's the same. So that was the closest, I would say, we got to changing this behavior to actually take the, I would say, fear out of sending, um, saying, you know, I know it's going to be only this much, and I know it's going to reach really quick, and I can send it anywhere, whether I send a very small amount or whether I send a very large amount. So I hope that answers some of the consumer behavior stuff. Yeah, it does. And, you know, it made me think about Thailand is a very popular tourist destination. As tourism is recovering post-pandemic, I think a lot more tourists are just less likely to carry cash because they're used to, you know, not carrying cash in their home countries. And so I wonder if you could speak to if you've seen as tourism starts to bounce back, you know, is it easy for someone who you know, is from the U.S. or Germany and goes to Thailand for a week to pay for things that maybe five years ago were more likely to be paid in cash, say, at a farmer's market or, you know, tips, et cetera. Is it easy now for them to use a QR code and be able to exchange money quickly? So there are a lot of initiatives, I would say, on this. And I think I'm speaking on Visa's behalf, but Thailand happens to be one of the top spend countries, I would imagine, for tourists that are arriving from globally to Thailand, because we have pre-pandemic over 40 million people arriving in our country, retirees, digital nomads now, and tourists now. So it's a bit changed over the COVID period. The type of tourism may have changed. But since we run a money exchange outlet as well, I can tell you that there are very specific countries where I see cash still normal. And I see mm. certain countries where cashless is absolutely, you know, the understood way to move around. But I don't think at the moment they can do cross-border QR payments that easily. That's still something that I haven't seen take off in Thailand yet. So either you're spending it on a card in this case, or withdrawing it out on an ATM, or in this case, the merchant's accepting a visa payment, and it's a cashless transaction, or they're visiting a close-by money exchange shop to convert their currency to Thai baht. So we are still seeing that, but I would say the exchange is very clear that it's a drop-off compared to pre-pandemic volumes. Deepan, do you want to talk about some of the growth opportunities here, whether it's this use case or other ways in which digital businesses, as things become more digital, where does Visa see as the growth areas? I think choice and that what I'll call plurality of endpoint. So, I mean, what we're doing at Visa Direct is when we work with a bank or a fintech non-bank partner, we're trying to give them the ability to send that money cross-border to land it into a card as an endpoint, land it into an account, or land it into a digital wallet. D-Money, of course, is an example of a digital wallet. And digital wallets in Asia-Pacific are very prevalent. There's more than $2 billion in existence. So to offer a customer true reach and cross-border, you need to be able to offer that customer the ability to send money into a digital wallet. I mean, fintechs generally in the last three years have been attacking this market share, and there's a number of live programs and corridors which are seeing volumes. Admittedly, the average transaction size tends to be smaller than when money is sent to a bank account, but that is growing. 
And what we're now also seeing is now banks are realizing that they need to also offer this to their, especially retail customers, and are sort of quickly adopting these solutions as well. So I think that is a big change that we've seen in the last three years, four years with fintechs. And I think we will see in the next three to five years with banks in the region. Yeah, so I wonder if you could talk about the Asia-Pacific region specifically in terms of cross-border payments growing. Like, what do you envision is the future of this money movement ecosystem, the share that Asia-Pacific might have of it, and where we're going? I'm biased because, of course, I look after Asia for Visa Direct. But when we look at those underlying drivers at the end of the day, global trade, exports, imports, global migration, growth in international students going overseas, the statistics all kind of point in one direction. And that's without even looking at sort of differential GDP growth rates and AP as a region compared to other regions. So we're very bullish in terms of the overall growth, although Asia is a very heterogeneous region in terms of number of different currencies, number of different countries, regulations, languages, etc. So obviously there's no one size fits all, whether it's outbound or inbound. And people often think about sending money from Asia to the rest of the world or money from the rest of the world to Asia. But I think actually a big percentage of these cross-border payments that I've talked about, more than a third, and I believe growing differentially fast, is what I would call intra-Asia, like sending from an Asian country and receiving in another Asian country as well. Whether it's trade, whether it's migration, whether it's education, healthcare, et cetera, I think that's also an area that's growing differentially fast. Aswan, do you see this trend too? And are there other sectors specifically, whether it's, you know, healthcare, where you see in Thailand that there's a growth and more of the market share of remittances? I'd like to bring up probably something that's happened during the pandemic and post-pandemic. I feel there's a lot of micro-entrepreneurs that have actually spurred up in Thailand as well as all over Asia. So due to people, you know, not being able to go to their jobs or finding an alternative, this huge burst of micro-entrepreneurs or digital nomads have figured out an entire new economy. And it's highly dependent on payments. If you think about it, if you are a micro-entrepreneur, you have limited cash flows, being paid on time, sending on time, receiving on time, cross-border. And in this case, if it's inter-Asia, even more. You know, we have over 40 countries around Asia, but over 30 currencies Everything is actually in a very short, talk about geographic, it's only 30 minutes to seven hours. You can travel pretty much everywhere in Asia. So if you think about there's a lot of inner Asia movement that spurs between cross-border. So I would say totally going towards this direction, there is a huge demand, whether it become healthcare, medical, or any type of digital economy-related fund movement, money movement. I see a huge new market that's come up that before perhaps was just very much individual to individual transaction. When we talk about remittances, it's self to self, self to mom and dad, family support kind of transactions. That's completely changing. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Do you see a kind of almost direct line between the ease with which money can be transferred and the sense that these micro-entrepreneurs can actually do business, get themselves going, compared with this previous trend in which a lot of the money was coming from official development assistance or you know foreign direct investments. Do you see now sort of like this blossoming of self-generated income sources from the people in Thailand? Totally. We see it in transaction volumes. We see it in size of transactions. We see it from sender and receiver behaviors of 
all types, hmm. you know, whether it's individuals sending to individuals or even businesses or SMEs or micro entrepreneurs. And the frequency is totally, you can tell it's not salary dependent. In this case, it is some sort of other income that they're generating from a gig economy. So it used to be very much, you know, mid-month, end-month kind of scenario. And now it's constant. And, you know, if you talk to someone as a remittance player five years ago, their main business was end of the month, beginning of the month or the mid-month. And now it's like every day is, uh, you know, that kind of day. Hmm. That's really interesting. Deepan, I wonder if you might talk about, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, the real estate market that a lot of people who are based in Asia buy real estate cross-border. Can you talk about how the technology being used to make global remittances better can help facilitate the cross-border real estate transactions and whether that might be responsible for an uptick or are there other variables, other factors that are more important? More than 20% of international overseas home buyers are actually just from two Asian countries, India and China. So I'm not even accounting for the other Asian countries. Typical destination markets would include the UK, the US, Australia, very often Europe, some intra-Asia as well, of course. A lot of other Asian folks would buy properties in Singapore, for example. These are large ticket sizes on average. So when you see a large ticket size, what the customer is looking for is sometimes something a little different to say a $200 worker remittance in the reverse direction. The per transaction fee, of course, is always important, but it's not the number one criteria anymore. The foreign exchange rate becomes critical. The security becomes critical. The confidence that the money will land in the account that you need it to land in. And also the trackability, right? That if there's a problem with the payment along the way, you know who to call and find out where the payment is and then it can get there. And look, whether it takes two seconds, as it might do on a small transaction, or it takes a few hours and it's later in the day, and that's the trade-off for that additional security, I think most people would be willing to kind of make that trade-off for a high-value transaction. So it's the sort of a subtle differences there in terms of what the customer is asking for. When you're trying to do these cross-border payments, Deepan, what are the pain points and how might Visa Direct help to address some of them? So obviously we're helping banks and fintechs, we're helping their customers. In many Asian countries where there's regulations, about how much you can remit money overseas as an individual or for what purposes, there's some data that needs to go along with the payment. It could be the purpose of payment. It could be supporting documentation. So obviously when we give a bank or FinTech from one of these markets, that money movement capability, it has to come along with that ability to share that purpose of payment with the regulator and capture that. And also if there's supporting documentation required. So I think those two pieces are sort of additional requirements, if you like, for some Asian countries. And the second point on sort of the risk management aspect of FX, again, it's about giving customers choice. And we're always able to do that in what we do, especially in our send to account solution for the larger ticket values. Some customers need an instant FX, which is sort of, they can almost see a similar rate on the Bloomberg or Google or whatever it is, right? And they see what they're getting from their bank and kind of off they go, right? Mm -hmm. and they know what they're getting. Some customers may want that FX rate to be held for a period of time, hmm. for three hours, for six hours, for 24 hours, while they're sort of communicating with the person on the other end on how much they need to receive. So we can sort of help banks and fintechs with that. I think the final thing I'd add is when you send someone money, you want them to receive exactly as much as you wanted them to receive, right? Yep. So that's something we obviously ensure all our partners as well. If you want someone to receive 
992 pounds in the United Kingdom, we will make sure they get 992 pounds in the United Kingdom, right? Hmm. I think the old traditional correspondent banking model sometimes had some surprises in it. You'd have intermediary banks or Benny deducts, they're called, mm -hmm. and uh, little lots would be chopped off at the receiving end. So the receiver might receive 20 or 50 pounds less. Yeah. So that's obviously a bad user experience. And that's one thing that we're also helping our customers solve for. Aswin, what are some pain points that Visa Direct is helping D-Money solve? I imagine fluctuating exchange rates might make this challenging when you're dealing with cross-border payments, for example. Firstly, I want to address that Visa is literally addressing a very, very big pain point, whether it's for banks or fintechs, due to the complexity of money movement between countries. Every single country has its own foreign currency regulations of money movement, whether it's in or out, their limits, their purposes, they are sender-receiver flags, they are fluctuation of how many times you send frequencies. So all of these are just examples of parameters that you have to deal with, that networks of networks like Visa have to deal with on behalf of banks or fintechs. But assume that a fintech like us had to manage that as well, which we do, a transaction that is, let's say, $300,000 coming into the country for, let's say, a real estate investment would go through a very different, you know, extended due diligence process versus hmm. something which is a thousand US. And yes, speed matters, expectation of clients matter. Sometimes proof of documents also matter in a country like Thailand, where they actually need that documents to go actually make a land transfer at the department or they're going to extend their visa since they're a retiree in Thailand. They actually need documentations to prove that this money came from an overseas source. These are just examples of complexities that would be determined each country. They're totally different as we grow. So that's just an example of how complex money movement is. And one point being foreign exchange rates, I want to emphasize that a country like Thailand, to give an example, does go through an interday fluctuation of over 1% at times. And that is, if you look at a global spectrum, that's insane compared to a very stable currency of dollars or others, where 0.1.2 would be considered a very big fluctuation already. And we're doing 5x of that in 24 hours. So having that certainty when you make a transaction plays a huge role, knowing how much the person's going to receive, they're going to receive the exact amount, knowing that, you know, you've sent it, it's done with, the bill's going to be paid, or the exact amount's going to reach, there's no deductions. And these kind of interday movements between send and receive countries are taken care of by the network. Hmm. So these are really extremely, I think, highlights that I wanted to emphasize on. Yeah, I mean, that suggests that being a fintech in Thailand in some ways incurs more risk than in a country where the currency is more stable, because there are times where you're probably on the losing end of that percentage, and yet you've promised to the client, to the customer that they're going to get a certain amount. How do you mitigate that risk? So more risk, more reward. That's one statement I can say. So I would say profit taking at times has to reduce and you have to be very careful covering the downside as quickly as you can. So it's sometimes better not to take a bigger margin and just cover the risk, which is our policy when we're working with FX and managing multiple currencies in this case, being very careful about not keeping any exposures open for you know X number of hours at, or at times minutes or at times even less than minutes, depending on how big the transaction is. So covering those positions are extremely 
So as we speak, we're talking and, you know, my heart and mind is on my treasury right now, hoping they've closed every trade in time. <laughs> yeah, Deepan, what is it that Visa can do to help mitigate risk? We basically give our bank and fintech partners choice. I think Aswin's non-bank, as we call it, right, is, is very sophisticated. They have a treasury and they're managing down their exposures and whatever's appropriate for their business. We'll have others who may not have made that similar investment. And they will essentially kind of ask us to do that FX for them, a single currency settlement, right? Where they don't want to take that exposure themselves because they've not got that infrastructure set up. And then we'll kind of help them with that as well. So there's different places on the journey that folks might be in. And sometimes you could even have a hybrid approach. I have some banks, for example, who for their large currencies, they like to manage the FX themselves. It's for the G7, for example. But for then for a smaller, say, exotic route, which has less liquidity, they'll come to us and ask for help. So we could have a hybrid approach sometimes for one provider too. My question for you, Deepan, is about transparency for the consumer. So you mentioned that in the past, when money was sent cross-border, there were often charges that were not transparent to the sender or the receiver that were being taken out of the chunk of money that was moving. Can you tell us now about the consumer's demand for transparency, where that lies, how important that is, and where you see that trend going in the future? I just want to pick up on something Aswin said earlier when he talked about the real-time payment network in Thailand, which is, I mean, largely domestic real-time payment networks and made some early forays into cross-border, but let's say it's largely domestic now by volume. And I think that has actually increased customer expectations on many dimensions. Number one, on transparency. Number two, on cost effectiveness. Number three, on speed of the money getting where it needs to get. And four is reach. So... I do believe that these same things that the customers asked for on transparency, speed, reach, the things that they've been trained to expect, they are expecting now from their cross-border payment providers. Is it easy to do all of this on day one? I mean, the answer is, is no, right? Transparency, we can. Cost, there is a difference between cross-border and domestic but that cost differential is rapidly narrowing, for example. So I do think it's almost become table stakes, right? To give customers that transparency and comfort because if they don't get it, they'll send their money somewhere else or using another means. So on Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid fire questions. We'll start with Aswin. What developing technology do you predict will change once again how money moves between people or businesses? I think digital currencies as well as new settlement processes that governments as well as banks are working on. Deepan, what's the biggest need today in terms of global remittances? Speed, cost, reach. And what's next on the horizon when it comes to global remittances? Digital wallets and the share of global payments that are either sent from digital wallets cross-border or received into digital wallets cross-border. Aswin, this one's for you. What aspect of money movement is more complicated than most people think? Settlement. All right, this is for either both of you or whichever one can come up with it first. <laughs> can you predict the future of money movement with a single catchy phrase? I'd say uh, making global local. Oh, I like that. Making global local. What about you, Aswin? Anything to add? So I I'm going to stick with my uh, company slogan where it's money anytime, anywhere. <laughs> Okay, Deepa and Aswin, thank you so much for joining us on Money Travels. Thank you so much. Thank you, Indra. Thank you, Aswin. 
thank you, Deepan and Aswin, for joining us on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa. Visa.